Hi, my name is Susan. I've been arrested 32 times just for listening to people talk with each other. The problem was I used to hide in the bushes outside the windows of people's homes to enjoy listening to strangers talk to each other. It's just something I like to do. I get bored and lonely sometimes, you know. Hey, Susan, don't do all that. There's another way to enjoy random conversations? Now, thanks to the podcast show, I can enjoy listening to conversations with strangers and learn something new every week. No more listening outside the window just to enjoy a good conversation. Tune in weekly on Wednesdays and subscribe for updates on your favorite platform to the Toddcast show and help our podcast family continue to grow and share around the world. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Toddcast show. My name is Todd Mira, your host, and I'm so excited to be here with all of you. The Toddcast show is dedicated to exploring the human condition through conversation with strangers. We explore the positive, interesting, and oftentimes shocking side of human nature. In each episode of the Toddcast show, I talk with strangers in a down-to-earth, old-school, and heartfelt way about their life. Nothing is ever scripted, everything is spontaneous, positive, and we never discuss politics. You won't know what to expect next. Join in the conversation to laugh, love, learn, and grow with others around the planet. Who will I call next? Tune in to find out every Wednesday at midnight Pacific or for playback anytime on your favorite podcast listening platform. And stay connected with us at ToddCastShow.com. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the ToddCast Show. Today, I'm joined with my guest, Kim Williams. How are you doing today, Kim? I'm great. Thank you. How are you? Oh, doing great. Thanks for asking. Where are you calling from today? Washington, D.C. Oh, really? Wow, that's yeah. cool. Very yeah. cool. What's it like there today? Is the weather decent? No, it's hot. <laughs> but okay. What's that's hot part there? of it. Yeah, yeah. A little bit, um, a lot of humidity, um, oh, but it's okay. That'll do it. Is it in the hundreds? No, we were there before, um, but yeah, it's dipping into the 90s again. I don't know if what's worth worse. I live in the Henderson, Nevada area now, and I've uh, been enjoying temperatures as high as 117 degrees on a consistent Whoa. basis. And today, <laughs> today, I think it said 106, and it's actually kind of nice outside. Okay, well, I won't complain to you. That's for sure. <laughs> I know, but I remember the humidity was a nightmare when I lived in Florida. So I yeah. feel you. I feel you. <laughs> that 90 can feel like, uh, wow, you know, when will I be? fully cooked yes, <laughs> yes exactly broiled human that's mm -hmm. awful and where were you born if i might ask uh, actually this same area i was uh, born in falls church virginia uh, my mm. mom was also born in this area and then i brought my adopted daughter to this area we always leave but this is where we migrate to have our babies that's our joke in our family that's that's funny that's cool. Yeah. Well, at least, at least you know where to go. That's good. So yeah. many people, it's like, where is this going to happen? Oh my God, that was a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> and did you grow up with siblings? 
Yeah, I have a brother and a sister. My brother is actually in Florida and, you know, I'm I'm sure he's deeply feeling that humidity that you were just yeah. thinking of. Absolutely. That's cool. And are your parents still together? My dad passed away about 10 years oh, ago, but yeah, that's okay. You know, they were high school sweethearts and had a, mm. a long, happy life together. But my mom is uh, still alive and kicking and as sassy as ever. And so, oh, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> that is great. And um, what was it like in your household as a child? Let's reach back first. And I always like to ask this question. Just, I've got a strange curiosity about it. Is uh, What's the earliest memory in your life that you can recall? Oh, wow. I think one of the earliest memories in my life is walking in the woods with my dad. Hmm. Um, he was a photographer. And when I was really, really little, um, we would just go for these long walks and we would take pictures of all these different things. And I can remember him like explaining how to set up a shot and how to look at light and perspective and little things like that. But that was kind of our thing. That is really, really cool. What a neat memory that must be. And not only that, but valuable because you learned how to see things a little bit differently than normal, you know? Yeah, absolutely. That is really beautiful. And how did your mom, uh, just because, I mean, let's hit both. I've never actually done this, but what's the earliest memory you have with your mother? Um, I think I think my earliest memory around her is um, climbing on her legs and pulling on her pants because she was making cookies or something that I wanted in the kitchen. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That is cool. Very cool. Yeah. How funny. You know what I did? You just reminded me of something. And I was born in Newport News, Virginia. Do you mind if I do a quick share? No, absolutely. So I was a rascally little kid. And, um, you know, I remember being in the crib, actually, and seeing my brother coming and picking me up once. But there's one memory, for some reason, you just tugging at the pants. Uh, mm -hmm. so one day, when I was a very small child, because I was only in Virginia until I was 18 months old, I apparently, and I remember this myself, I can see it in my mind right now, um, I got a roll of masking tape and started at my grandmother's foot while she was taking a nap. And oh. went, oh, I, I tied that masking tape around the entire living room in every conceivable way. It looked like those lasers in the Matrix going oh everywhere. You know? It was so crazy. And I remember getting in so much trouble and I had to eat a bar of soap. Not the whole oh. thing, but that was the punishment back then is we had to take a bar of soap, put it in our mouth and take a little bite, man. And... Oh, my God. So, yeah, maybe that's where some of my trauma comes from. Maybe, I talk, yeah. <laughs> I should talk to my psychologist about this, actually. <laughs> yeah, we've come a long way on the punishment front. I oh, that is cool. Yes, it is. And what was it like growing up with your siblings? Were you guys close? How was that whole thing? Oh, yes. I remember, you know, lots of laughing, lots of playing, lots of arguing and fighting in the back seat, And, oh, somebody got this and I should have got that. <laughs> and mm -hmm. so I think it was probably pretty normal. Yeah, that's fun, though. That's what makes it uh, kind of nice. It all works out in the end, but it is that sibling rivalry is very real. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who needs a competitor or an enemy? You've got a relative. I know, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Your, your challenges will not be fused, just learning to deal with them. Sounds like you grew up in a very wholesome, loving environment. Would you say that's true? Yeah, 
Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, my, my parents were big huggers. It was um, kind of funny. I mean, a lot of it was my dad. Um, I remember I didn't fully understand until like I was much older that he just loved to hug everybody. Like he worked in for Associated Press in downtown Atlanta and he would make security guards hug him. He wanted to hug everyone. And then finally someone showed up from the New York office and he went over to hug him. And she's like, I'm from HR. I'm here to talk to you about your hugging. <laughs> and he was so <laughs> fresh. <laughs> he was just so sweet. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but, yeah. oh, that's so yeah. funny. Oh my gosh. Um, very interesting. And did you have a lot of friends growing up as a child? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it was, you know, I, I, in fact, I was talking about this to somebody earlier today, like, you know, I didn't know how lucky I was to be able to run out the front door and go get on the bike and play with my friends and go roam around and do whatever without a care in the world. And we only came back when we were hungry. And, you know, now I have a 15 year old who doesn't leave the house. Like they're always on TikTok and her kind of growing up in cities, like there was no way for her to ever go anywhere without me. Um, And, you know, I just think about like how different that is and how Mm -hmm. it does feel like something is a little bit lost with that. Yeah, you got that right. Um, There's a two parts of my mindset about this, you know, and one is that, man, I'm really sorry that I never made children. But at the same time, I'm also really thankful because, boy, I probably would have committed suicide or they would have killed me. Uh, because if I, if my children were anything like I was, I want nothing to do with it. I want nothing to do with it. Okay. Like, I understand now. Like, I'm older, it's like, wait a second. Hold on a second. I can't believe they put up with some of that stuff. But, you know, that's yeah. what it's about. I was a little hyperactive energizer bunny and it never stopped and you know so yeah having to deal with that in conjunction with social media and stuff that would drive me crazy (laughs) it's well it's interesting it's funny because you know now that my daughter's a teenager and you know i've joked with her for years because she wants to be a civil rights attorney when she grows up and and my child was born to argue (laughs) (laughs) or i'll call my mom and i'm like oh my god mom she just argues with me over everything. And then she just laughs so hard. And she's like, you deserve every bit of it. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. That's so weird that you say that. My grandmother always told me that you need to be a lawyer because you like to argue so much. (laughs) She was so sweet, you know, and she didn't mean anything by it. My mom wanted me to be a doctor because she likes money. my, My grandmother was the smart one and said, Hey, you know what? You argue all the time. You should be a lawyer. Yeah. No, I didn't go in either direction. I can't stand blood. And boy, the whole idea of being in college that long just did oh, not appeal to me. I can get that. Yeah. You know, it's such a shame in a way, but like it is what it is. And, you know, I became who I was. But like, yeah, it's kind of a bummer. The closest I got was radio broadcast experience in college. That's what I was focused on. But mm-hmm. my grandpa died and kind of stopped so all nice. the college stuff. And, you know, life, life. Oh, no. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. That's how it works. And I God, I'm so thankful to have those memories and influences and all of that. Um, and speaking of which, you know, and I never reached this far and I really should because grandparents are the unsung heroes sometimes, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How do your grandparents play into your life? Uh, life and development as a, an early person? Oh my gosh. Um, my mom's dad, um, was absolutely my favorite. I think 
I remember I wanted to marry him before I understood that you shouldn't marry your grandfather. <laughs> it was really tiny because he was just the perfect guy to me. You know, he was just so funny and he was so silly. But I feel like I get a lot of my personality kind of from him, too. Like, you know, he was just very adventurous. He loved to read. You know, he loved to explore new places and new things. And, you know, he, he was an interesting guy because, you know, he was he was working for Associated Press covering the civil rights movement. Oh, know, really? At a, a very challenging time, we'll just say. But I remember yeah. him talking about, you know, some of his heroes that were women at the Associated Press that were going on these assignments that even the guys were afraid to go on. And, you know, because, you know, at that time, photographers and reporters were getting pulled out of cars, they were getting beaten up. And it was um, a really just intense time. And, but I I feel like, you know, I, I learned a lot about courage from him. And, you know, that this idea that it's not just the wolves in the world that beat people up. It's it's also the, the sheep, essentially. It's the people who know something's not right, but don't speak up. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I didn't totally understand it when I remember him talking about it, but I just remember those words sticking with me. And the older I got, I understood it better. Like there's just gonna be these moments where you're gonna be in a crowd and you may be that one person saying, hey, wait a minute. And that's not an easy thing to do, but it's so important to do it. Absolutely right. Was he present during MLK marches and things like that? Um, I can't remember if he was there specifically because I remember he was in Georgia. So it wouldn't have been shocking if he was in some mm-hmm. of the, you know, Alabama's Alabama. right next door. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and um, but there, there was so many things going on. I mean, you still had all kind of um, violence. You had nonstop court cases that you know were pretty wild where there was plenty of evidence that somebody had done something and the juries were letting them off and um so it was really just kind of all over the whole region so i know he was tied to the atlanta bureau and that that was you know why he traveled around a lot you know at one point he lived in little rock arkansas they lived in new york and um and obviously dc where my mom was born and then they moved down and he spent most of his time out of the atlanta bureau and then interestingly, my dad went to work for Associated Press and was transferred up to D.C. where I was born. And then they went back down to the Atlanta Bureau. And I remember stuff was still going on with my dad where, you know, at that time, like D.C. was on fire and there were curfews and, you know, there was still a lot of like intensity um, there for them, too. So, yeah, a lot of interesting experiences and no shortage of stories. Um, wow. What a blessing. And you learn so much about his story and uh, historical perspective mm-hmm. and uh, things that you could really, you know, integrate into your life. Um, man, that's great. Those influences are powerful. What would yeah. you say some of your greatest challenges were growing up? Um, I was a painfully shy kid. Oh. And yeah, no, I was, I, and I still am an extreme introvert, but I know like I, I, kind of work through my words on that. Mm -hmm. And what was really funny for me is I joke that um, when I got to high school, there was like a lot of pressure at that time for girls to be pretty and not smart. And so you, you you felt all this pressure to almost kind of like dumb yourself down. And then 
I think by the time I finished high school, I used to joke that I had like a working vocabulary of like a hundred words. <laughs> I was like <laughs> heading off to college, not well prepared at all. And, uh, but then, you know, working really hard, you know, I ended up being able to write several books and become, you know, someone who wrote a lot of speeches. And I really feel like if I wouldn't have sent, struggled so much in my youth with that, that I wouldn't have pushed myself so hard to do a much better mm -hmm. job there. Mm -hmm. Wow. Very cool. Very cool. And so as a shy person growing up, um, I mean, you said you had a lot of friends and stuff. How did you break through that? Um, a lot of it was just the neighborhood. You know, that's one of the benefits I think of growing up in one place is that people mm -hmm. get to, to know you and, you know, yes. there's that kind of, yeah. So like there were friends of mine who were just, you know, these really funny girls and they didn't care if I was shy. They wanted to be friends with me and I was going to do it. <laughs> and so, and it was, right on. yeah. So they, they were, I think just really good key people that helped bring me out of my show. That's cool. Do you think men and women struggle differently in terms of, uh, you know, social shyness and things like that, or is it all the same? Just a you know, side, sidebar question. Yeah, I think, I think it's a good question. I hadn't thought about it before. I can see some, some differences. Like I know my brother was very similar to me and, um, I think in, you know, in some ways, it, at least back then, I, I really feel like this is changing. It was a lot harder, I think for guys to talk about that. Like it would show up as a vulnerability that mm -hmm. sadly, I don't think would have been very well received, at least when I was kind of growing up. Um, I do think it is, we've come a long way with men to be able to talk about things that they're feeling and experiencing a little more and that they're getting a little more support there. Yes. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, that's a good thing. I agree. I've always thought that women have it easy because it's just built in your nature and like you guys can go off together and be a bunch of strangers and come out like, you know, having produced something together just from that few minute interaction. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I always thought it was like that. But as I grew up, I realized, you know, yeah, man, you know, I need to be in touch with my feelings and be able to talk. And sometimes you got to reach out to other men. Mm -hmm. And um, it's important that we share because, uh, you know, we do need that support. And I think really yeah. men do lack that sometimes. But I agree with you. It's evolved to a really good place where people are becoming more open and aware that, you know, it's time for us to talk because if we don't, that energy that we're carrying inside and that we create through our thoughts, especially as men, because as providers, you know, typically in a traditional type sense is, you know, you grew up that I would imagine the man is usually the leader of the household, right? And mm -hmm. the wife supports the man in the relationship and marriage and somehow or another, they make the best team ever and things all work out but the guy's the one that's always thinking about you know making sure there's a roof over the head there's food for my family my kids don't need anything you know i can take care of my wife and you know i i think we really spend a lot of time thinking and feeling about that and boy i'll tell you like it's good to have that outlet you know it really yeah. makes a difference especially for parents i would think you know oh yeah yeah especially for parents right now <laughs> it's right <really> <laughs> Yes, yes. And there is so many crazy things going on. Um, so let's fast forward maybe a little bit. And mm -hmm. what was it like as you grew into your adulthood and, you know, going to high school? And uh, it sounds like you might have gone to college and yeah. all that good and, stuff. 
Yeah. And so, like I said, I, I really wasn't prepared for college at all. And, you know, I remember kind of coming from an area where, you know, a young woman's top priority was still supposed to be marriage at that mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. And I remember getting some money, you know, from grandparents and family members when I graduated high school. And I actually went and enrolled in a community college. And I ended up working three jobs to pay my way through school. And um, so it was, it was kind of like, it was a tough, exhausting path to take, but I'm actually really grateful for it when I look back at it, because I don't think kids today today could even do that, right? Like, you know, it was so much cheaper back then. Like I walked away with a bachelor's degree and and no debt. And, you know, now I just don't even know if that's um, possible. So I still felt pretty lucky, you know, that I was able to, to even be able to do that. Absolutely. And I know exactly what you mean. I remember when credit units cost like $2 and 50 <laughs> All right. At community college, when I started going, I think it was, I think they just raised it to like $5 and everybody was so mad. And now yeah. it's like, I mean, in the hundreds and it's yeah. ridiculous. And if you're out of state, it's even more, it's like, wow, you know, and um, what a racket. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it really is. And these poor kids are graduating, you know, with, you know, $100,000 in student loans and they're working at Starbucks or, you know, they, they can't afford to, to move out. So it's, it's really tough. Yeah, it is. You know, it's really funny, isn't it? In a way, the irony of it, it makes you just sense a a kind of a a sphere of deception, but something that's supposed to be completely empowering and enabling Mm -hmm. is actually the opposite. It's disempowering and disabling because you're always chasing your tail. And the whole idea is it's supposed to be empowerment to move ahead. And instead, okay, yeah, you can move ahead, but we're going to take a bunch of your money for a very long time (laughs) to do it. All right. And it's not supposed to be like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you're supposed to just earn your way through and be on your way, not be in debt for 20, 30 years over it. You right. know, it's like, I just never believed in that. That's why I stopped, actually, because it was just too ridiculous. And I saw my own brother. He was a graduate at Yale way back when. And mm-hmm. my oldest brother is 14 years older than I am. And he graduated with a degree in architecture with honors. And, you know, he's a very gifted person. Like, he's so smart. It's crazy. I wish we were still in touch. But, um, you know, it's like, what did he do? He ended up working at Levi Strauss, starting in the mailroom and ended up graduate or not graduating, but retiring as some kind of a leader of Latin America, you know, oh, and, wow. okay. for a company there. And, you know, something of, I mean, gosh, I always admired that, but I just could never see myself going through all those years of college and it never made sense. But, you know, for those that did it, you know, God bless them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, God bless them. That's for sure. And so what was the time in your life, actually, if I didn't go too fast and skip right over it? But when did you realize that you had purpose in the world? Um, I don't know if it was so much maybe purpose or direction. I remember my dad making me go see this movie I didn't want to see. And gosh, I must have been like 10 or 11. And it was Indiana Jones. <laughs> and, awesome. Um, yeah. And I was just like, wow, is that a career? Because I want that. <laughs> <laughs> and then I remember uh, when I took my first archaeology class, um, 
you know, like the room was packed and, you know, the professor walked in he was like, for all of you who saw this movie and, you know, you, you don't know what you're doing and this is nothing like that. And you could just see like everybody's heads sink a little bit. <laughs> and mm-hmm. it, it wasn't totally like that, but, you know, it, it, it was definitely something that made me very excited. And I, you know, after I got my bachelor's degree, I went on to get a master's degree in underwater archaeology and um, was able to spend like semesters diving on wreck sites in Bermuda. I did a lot yeah. of work in Alexandria, Egypt. And, um, and, and I remember these experiences like quite fondly, like, you know, it just the way it shapes you as a person and pulls you out of your environment. But mm-hmm. at the end of all that, you know, I realized that underwater archaeology is it's not a career. It's an expensive hobby. And so yeah, I was going to have to do something else. Right. Yeah. That's amazing. I'm um, from a long time ago. I used to scuba dive, but I'd really like to get back into it. I, I miss it so much. What a great experience that must have been. Like, wow. Yeah, it was pretty fun. Well, not only that, but like, I mean, to, you know, it's like you're on a treasure hunt and I mean, pirate ships used to be on the water. And I mean, there's so many things. Did you ever see a mermaid under there? Like, <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. Those are some of the questions I always think of when I, when I think of those kind of things. Um, what a beautiful experience. And um, as you went through college and all that and then changed trajectory in your career path, how did all that line up and work out? Yeah. So, you know, with the the realization that, you know, there wasn't a lot I could do with the degree that I had other than to work for a museum or to teach. And so at that time I had moved to Florida. So I I was in the Tampa St. Pete area for about seven years. And, you know, I just had some good friends there, moved and settled in. I was doing, you know, like diving in aquariums, like a Epcot's a big aquarium and that awesome. was, uh, yeah and it was it was pretty fun and um, but then I applied to teach part-time at a college there and I remember when I brought my transcripts and they were you know they very clearly stated you know like underwater archaeology theory and you know under, it, it was not related at all to history and I wanted to try and teach something in anthropology or archaeology but I had gone to East Carolina University where it, underwater archaeology fell under the history department. And so they were so strict. They're like, no, all your transcripts, the prefix fixes say HIST, you're only allowed to teach history. And so they set me up to start teaching early and modern American history, just two classes. And I was like, oh, crap. I was literally just like one chapter ahead of the students because I had right, that right. stuff. And I had studied history intensely, but it was all ancient Egypt, you know, or or Ptolemaic Egypt from Alexander the Great to Cleopatra. Like it was nothing at all that was going to be covered in these subjects. And then I think it was about six or seven weeks into the very first semester, the dean starts me in the parking lot and he's like, hey, can you pick up six more classes tomorrow? And I was like, what (laughs) happened? And one of the, the professors had just died. He had a heart attack that night. Oh, no. So they asked me to take over for the rest of the year. And then when I competed for the job, I was able to get it in large awesome. part because I had been doing it. And I stayed there and taught for seven years. Awesome. That is yeah. amazing. That is yeah. amazing. Wow. And so why did teaching end? 
Um, I love to travel. I mean, I had, you know, every time I would get the summers off, I would go down to like, you know, Belize and go diving and teach online. You know, I was traveling all over the world. And I remember, you know, when I was kind of doing these internships and, and research and stuff in Alexandria, Egypt, I met a diplomat there. And I remember she invited me to her fancy house because uh, she was a U.S. diplomat. And, you know, I just wanted to kind of get to know her a little bit. And I was like this dirty hippie, <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> was diving and, you know, like backpacking. And, you know, she was this like lovely lady, you know, with this nice little house inviting me over for tea. And she was like, have you ever thought about applying? I'm like, oh, there's no way they would take me. And then after I was teaching for a bit, I, I got involved with this program. It was called the International Scholar Laureate Program. And they had an archeology span program and they had a diplomacy program and it went to China and Tibet. And so we had these groups where we would take these students and they could get school credit and had these really great experiences. So I would take, you know, young archeologists and we would go work on the exhibit for, I'm not sure you ever heard of the Terracotta Warriors. Mm. And so, you know, we spent time there and we travel all over the country. And at the same time, this diplomacy group was traveling and I got to know a lot of the faculty advisors from there. And they kind of said the same thing. They're like, you really should give this a shot. You know, you, you, you're really interested in international affairs. You're really interested in the world. Like, why don't you look at it? And so I looked at the test and I saw that it was a history exam. And by that point I had been teaching history for almost seven years. And I was like, wow, this would be really embarrassing if I don't do well on this. Right, right, right. And so I actually never told a soul. I just went and took the test and I passed it. And I was like, awesome. okay. So I just kind of kept going through the process and ended up getting into the foreign service. Wow. The foreign service. What's that? Uh, so those are our diplomats. And so uh, you it's working for the U.S. Department of State, and uh, which is one of the first cabinet positions that was created um, going all the way back to the 1700s. And so the role back then was kind of even before the American Revolution started, it was to go, you know, work with European countries to try and get support. And then for a long time after that, you know, we had typically wealthy folks that would go live in other countries to try and help establish commerce and trade or negotiate treaties. And then, you know, now you're in something where, you know, we've got thousands and thousands of people living all over the world, uh, working out of embassies and consulates and, um, you know, just trying to help Americans overseas, you know, building up political ties you know, helping American businesses, you know, get stood up and thrive around the world and um, and then working on, you know, visas and passports uh, for folks that want to come visit the United States. Neat. Is that what you do now? Uh, actually, no. Um, oh, oh, wait, wait, wait. I don't want to jump too far. But like, I just <laughs> okay. like, I'm like, wow, that's really crazy. Like, oh, that's going to be an interesting thing to discuss. How did that lead to where you are now? Like, just to kind yeah. of bridge the gap, because I want to get to some of the things that you are focused on and help our audience learn from you and uh, get some value from what you do today. Yeah, no, I'd be happy to. And um, it, it was really um, kind of a life changing experience in the State Department. When when I joined, I had signed up as something called a public diplomacy officer. And so that's someone who gives speeches, works with the media and, 
you know, my whole life had seemed well suited for that at that point. But yeah. early on, they directed me to a manager officer position. And at first I was like, you can't do this to me. I'm a liberal arts major. Like what's happening? And they're like, well, yeah, you're going to go do HR. And I was like, oh, my God. And then I showed up and I loved it. I just wow. absolutely loved it because you're there on the best day of people's lives and on the worst day of people's lives. And it just had so much meaning. Like I felt like what I did made a huge difference to someone. And I really liked that. Hmm. That's beautiful. Yeah, that actually is the one aspect of HR that would always appeal to me. I'm more of um, always been customer service focused, but I ran my own marketing company for a number of years and things like that and had a chance to learn about hiring and firing and managing and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, HR is always kind of called to my heart. It's a cool career option, but for some reason I never pursued it. I can understand why you'd like that. I really can. Yeah. And helping people all the time, you know, yeah, yeah, definitely. that's the best part. Now I will say this now, since you've opened up this can of worms, we've got to go there. Okay. Because I've yeah. got a couple of HR stories. <laughs> okay. Let's, let's hear it. <laughs> uh, you're the perfect person, but I was kind of curious, you know, why do you guys have such a bad rap? Cause like uh, a lot of people are really concerned when HR calls them in and for good reason um, on some terms and cases, I guess, but like, it seems like sometimes HR people are a little scary to the average employee. Do you agree with that? Or do you think that that just varies with different companies? I think it can vary widely with different companies. I do think that they have a bad rap and this is going to be very unpopular, but I do think a lot of it is deserved. Um, mm -hmm. And, and part of the reason why I think that is because, you know, in a, in a lot of cases, HR is not equipped for some of the, the politics. Like, I don't know if I could have navigated things I had navigated if I hadn't have already been a diplomat. And if I hadn't mm -hmm. already, you know, built up some experience kind of, you know, navigating landmines, mm -hmm. you know, having really hard conversations mm -hmm. while trying to keep the, the temperature down. And, you know, in terms of, yeah, you know, there are times where you do have to engage in, in discipline and tough conversations that are needed and, and they're not going to feel good. And, and, you know, for me, I see my job in those moments to just express enough kindness and empathy to help a human being get, get through a difficult moment and mm -hmm. protect their dignity in that, that instance. And, but also, I think, you know, one of the, the challenges that I'm trying to, to really change in HR is that they're not engaging up enough. Um, and, you know, particularly like if you're looking at tough environments, toxic environments, that almost always stops and starts at the very top of an organization. And I've been in rooms where I'm seeing things that are said that shouldn't be said you know, where things are definitely wrong and whether I'm a minority or not, or whether this person can fire me or not, if I'm standing there and I don't say anything, then what am I doing here? Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, I don't think that that is a shared view by mm -hmm. other folks. Gotcha. Gotcha. Hey, I'll just share real quick. Cause you might find this to be 
really entertaining, but I actually hope uh, that there's something to be learned from it because it really confused me. But I worked at a company very briefly, uh, fairly briefly. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, I got called into HR because I made the mistake of um, mentioning something about uh, wanting Asian food for lunch that day. And it wasn't even a, a derogatory sense. It wasn't anything. There was no joke. There was no... There was no nothing, and somebody in the Slack chat room, because we all talked about different things, and I was like, man, I really want Asian food today for lunch, and somebody said that that was racism, and I ended up sitting on a Zoom call for an hour with the, this these two people that were re- so ridiculous, I couldn't believe it. Like One was a really older um, African-American woman, and she was very bitter, like no smile, it was like a frown, and then the other one was an attorney for the company, and they were both like, they literally spent the entire hour telling me that the only way out of this was that I had to admit that I was racist. Oh, wow. It it was a really strange thing. And I'm like, heck, no, I'm not going to do that. And no, I'm not. And I didn't say it like that. There was no context inferring any such thing and all. It was just unreal, man. I've never experienced anything like that. It was through a staffing agency. I'll never work through a staffing agency again. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Wow. Yeah. I mean, for making a comment about wanting a particular type of food, I mean, yeah, that's pretty spectacular. I was um, surprised, but it made me worry a little bit. You know, it was like, gosh, you know, it's like uh, you can't really speak, you know, about certain things and what are those things. And we're living in a time where some people get really upset about the silliest things. And to me, that's their problem. But I know HR, it's actually their problem. <laughs> yeah, well, and I think it just, you know, there's like a, a guiding principle that, you know, whoever is the offended party, like there can be some form of like mediation there, you know, it like you have to, it gets far more difficult though, when you're looking at, you know, whether that was like unlawful kind of discrimination based on protected characteristics. I mean, just based on the information that you've shared, I'm struggling to see how that crossed that threshold, but you know, even in cases where that threshold's not crossed, if somebody says, hey, this really bothered me, you know, I might have a conversation. I, I can't fathom making someone try to or trying to yeah. make someone say that. Yeah, I know from figuring it out and other people that liked me that actually came and, you know, messaged me about it and said, hey, you know, uh, and kind of helped me understand. Apparently there was somebody or a couple of people on the team that just didn't care for me. And so that was their way. It felt like a little bullying, actually, which was kind of the point. And they uh, ate it up and like the HR people, they were like wolves on a dead carcass. It was like, mm. I couldn't, it was so fast and so unreasonable. And no matter what I said to make reason out of it, they wouldn't hear it. And then kept insisting that I can conform to their viewpoint and, and admit something that I actually wasn't even responsible for. <laughs> yeah. So it was really weird, man. I'll tell you. Well, um, but that kind of goes into the integrity of HR. I mean, they should be pretty cold, hard math, you know, whenever mm-hmm. a, a statement is made or an accusation is made because totally investigations can turn in wild directions and you don't know, and you don't presume. And, you know, because if it looks like you're even putting your thumb on the scales from the very beginning, then, you know, there can be some issues there. Um, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it's supposed to be a fairly clinical 
uh, kind of process. And I don't know, not everybody is, I think, trained enough in some of that. Yeah. And uh, I have a strange question just on my own curiosity, because I'm a job seeker right now. I might be changing my path. And I've been working at TurboTax as a seasonal employee, and they took the three month off that they normally give us and turned it into seven months without any warning. So um, looking for something different. And I've been uh, kind of trying to fight the ATS system and get through because I have some really great experience and stuff uh, that is actually quite relevant to many of the positions I'm applying for, but I'm getting denied. And I was kind of wondering if we could delve into things that relate to stuff that hiring managers look for and things like that, maybe to help people that are in my position or might be looking to, you know, apply for different things. And it's not like it used to be, as I'm sure you're aware. Um, You know, back in the day, I remember I made a resume on a typewriter and, (laughs) you know, for real. And I'm I'm only 51 right now. But like, you know, I've been there and it's like it was really easy to get a job doing anything. But now it's like with the virtual thing. It's uh, it's my preference to work at home, but I uh, I've noticed that like uh, wow, you know who are these people reading these resumes and what's going on? But then I realize there's systems, you know, that are set up to try to weed things out, and it's keyword based and all that. Is that going too deep in a direction, or is that in your wheelhouse? I uh, know that's uh, totally my wheelhouse. I mean, we actually don't use that. We have human beings look at things, but. I think particularly with the, you know, the rise of one click apply, uh, the challenge now becomes, you know, we've posted jobs and had 4,000 people apply in three hours. Right. And so it's, it's really difficult to kind of stand out and break through in something like that. And so for me, one of the best pieces of advice is to try and make a human connection anywhere you yes. can. Um, because I think that that really goes so far. There's a really great book out there. I think it's called the two hour job search. Mm -hmm. And it is um, something that really talks about like how people can, you know, use like informational interviews as a way to make connections at companies where they want to work. And then when jobs come available, going back to those folks to say, Hey, I'm thinking about throwing my hat in. Would, Would you support me or, you know, bring my application forward or, you know, mention this to the hiring manager. And a lot of times if they know you, they'll be agreeable to that. But then also too, from those informational interviews, it gives you information you could probably never find from a website, you know, like, you know, what are the biggest challenges for your company right now? Like, why do you love working there? And so when you tailor your resume and your cover letter, you're doing it in a way that should hit a bullseye because you are that much more informed. Mm-hmm. Very good. Excellent. So, is there a way to find companies that are more human oriented rather than running everything through a machine? Or is there really no way around it because there's so many applicants, they have to it's do that. It's hard to know. Yeah. It can be hard to tell from the applicant side, whether they use an ATS or not. Um, so um, that's why I think, you know, trying to come up with that workaround for some of those um, organizations, or if they have like a physical office, you know, to call someone and be like, can I buy you a cup of coffee? You know, if, if they're, if it's at something where they're like, actually there, mm-hmm. um, you know, or take someone to lunch or something like that can be really good too. 
Interesting. Yeah, I didn't even know that you could really do that stuff. It seems so impersonal. It almost seems inappropriate to follow up after the resume to me because of there's so many, you know, it just all seems so impersonal. But that really yeah. makes a good point. So if there's a place that you know you want to be, then you need to find somebody in that company or at least preferably in HR. But is that in that cheating? Like, can they do that? Um, no, you, you can definitely do it. And um you know, I think the ideal is actually not even so much the person in HR, but like, say you're going to, I don't know, work for like Disney World or whatever, and you want to be an accountant. So reaching out to someone who's in that shop where you would love to work mm -hmm. and having a conversation with them so that they are then flagging HR by saying, hey, I know this person, I can vouch for them. They're really great. We've had a conversation. Okay. That's interesting. So that's a good thing. And um, as far as having somebody to help with getting a resume prepared for the ATS uh, onslaught, yeah. um, is there any advice that you could offer for seeking someone to write a resume? I mean, honestly, I've tried it myself and failed and I've, I've got experience doing search engine marketing and search engine optimization. I, to me, it was translatable experience, but there's just something about having to change it for each job application and you know all that just, it's throwing a monkey wrench into it so i personally decided to hire somebody but the first two people that did it failed miserably and mm -hmm. did not do a good job i found somebody that gave me one um that's better i think it scored very high in the ats thing but i'm still not getting the action i'm looking for so you know, I'm just not sure. And I'm kind of wondering, do you have any advice for someone like myself that might be looking to improve their resume and get it to actually work correctly? Yeah, I mean, I, I've actually talked to a number of people, and I, I say this with a little bit of caution, who have successfully used chat GPT. Mm -hmm. um, and what they've done is they pasted in their resume and then they'll paste in the job description right. and ask it to update their resume to better match. And so letting that do a pass for you, you know, can be a time saver. I definitely caution folks, do not rely 100% on ChatGPT. Cause sure. It, yeah, I mean, but at least it, it'll do it in 30 seconds and then you can kind of go through and clean up or ask it to do it again. Um, mm -hmm. And then once you kind of get that set up, you can even say, now please write a cover letter um, mm -hmm. for this job if, you know, they're taking that. Um, but in terms of just like automating the process and the incredible amount of time it can take, um, I found people use that with some success. Awesome. And actually to piggyback that, that's a great tip. And I love that you went straight to AI, man. That is great. <laughs> I've been using it for different things and I actually did a resume last night for my technical side using nothing but chat GPT. It's so strange that you said that, um, just yeah. to see what it would do. I was like, Hey, I want to make a resume. Can you help me? And he's like, you know, he, um, yeah. I, I haven't named my chat bot yet, but maybe yeah, I'm, sure. okay. I'm like, Hey, how? And it went through the whole thing. And so I filled it out and sure enough, it came back and blah, blah, blah. It actually spit out, you know, something pretty cool and record time. I was really surprised. Um, but I want to share something with our listeners in case they don't know. And also with you, just another tool in your tool set, but there's a system that's been created that actually received a lot of venture capital funding called Teal HQ, T E A L H Q, and uh, mm -hmm. I want to say it's Teal H 
.hq or something, but if you do a Google search, you'll find it right away. And what that does is really even more amazing because it takes whatever resume you upload it, or it can create one for you, and then it gives you kind of like the comparison and synthesis of different things and kind of leads you in what to include and what to exclude. Mm-hmm. I was using that too. It's a great tool, but like I just you know, I need something solid to start with that I know is working. And then from there, you can take it into a system like that. And it's supposedly it will change things and allow you to edit and make differences for each different job application. And it'll automatically feed that into the data. So it's a really cool tool. You should check it out. Like it's totally, that's right up your alley for sure. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you. Oh, no, you're very welcome. Thank you. And um, aside from using chat GPT, uh, do you think that it makes sense to hire somebody to do resumes these days? Um, it's tricky. I I think it's it probably depends on what field you're in. You definitely want to make sure that it's somebody who um, isn't just writing for every job in the universe, but like really kind of knows your industry, too, I think mm-hmm. is um, particularly important um, yeah, I mean, I've seen folks have, you know, some success, but I also know quite a few people who've had experiences like yours, um, mm-hmm. where they weren't happy with the, the finished product. Mm-hmm. Um, I think coming at it from the lens of having somebody help you save time can be valuable because sometimes these can be the hardest things to write, you know, cause you're trying to have undertones of I'm amazing. You should hire me, but you also want to strike you know, don't come across as too overconfident <laughs> and right. it can be really tricky to whittle down those words. And so I think almost like having a thought partner and I think AI can fill in some of that space a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. um, you're like rewrite this bullet or, you know, give me 10 variations and see if something jumps out at you, um, mm-hmm. that there may be ways to kind of navigate from there. Very cool. Yeah, that's great advice. Actually, it sounds good. I'm going to look at that a little bit more myself, actually. I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. And and actually now, um, I just want to make sure that we don't miss an opportunity for anything that we might want to include. And the first thing I just want to ask, and I always ask everybody the same question, is, is there mm-hmm. anything that we might have missed that's on your heart or in your mind that you might like to share with our listeners today that would be helpful to them? And then I want to jump into your business and how people can work with you and the types of benefits that they can experience by reaching out to Kim Williams for her expert HR advice and whatnot. Yeah, I mean, I think we kind of touched on a, a tiny bit when we were talking about like HR and the the bad rap piece. And right, right. Because um, what I spend a lot of time focusing on is trying to help HR professionals who are struggling to manage up. You know, because I think a lot of people might be surprised to learn like how much retaliation happens against folks in that field. Um, where they're trying to advocate for other people or themselves. I have personally experienced that. You know, there have been times where I've had to go to, you know, someone who I report to as an at-will employee and inform them I'm opening an investigation into their behavior for some things that they've done. And that's rarely well received. (laughs) And sometimes, you know, that can come with a lot of anger and emotion and, you know, you kind of have to build up that like psychological muscle just to be able to, you know, withstand some of those moments. And it can definitely feel like your head is on a chopping block, you know, and some of that stuff. And 
a lot of the the training, like I mentioned before, doesn't fully help people. But then that also leads to a bigger problem where if HR is maybe not empowered um, in a particular way that really protects people or their entire system around is protecting a few individuals at the top and this person reports up to those individuals in a way that they don't feel like they can navigate, it begins to hurt everybody in that organization. It's where you see like, you know, kind of the origins of a lot of toxic cultures, a lot of workplace abuses um, can really tie into these spaces because it's so important that you address, you know, any type of challenges anywhere that, that happens in an organization, you know, with reasonable speed and tact and, you know, openness and fairness and kind of engaging in that clean process um, to get folks through that and then to come up with resolutions on the other side. And I think, you know, we talk a lot in this field about how to manage employees, but we, we almost never talk about how to manage executives um, mm-hmm. or, you know, like the, the people <laughs> who run an organization or even board members or things like that. That's just everyone's kind of afraid to engage there, but I think it's absolutely the most important place we should be looking right now. Oh, I couldn't agree more. And some of those uh, executives need a leash, not just yeah. management, you know, yeah. like, let's go, let's go for a walk and like <laughs> relax a little bit and come back. All right. Like, you know, yeah. uh, that's amazing. And so you're basically there to help other HR executives to fine tune their craft and to help avoid issues and anticipate things to create solutions in their own individual lives. Right. Yeah. And, and I say that as someone who's been there, you know, um, part of the reason why I became so passionate about this is, you know, at one point I worked for a chief executive who, you know, was just uh, verbally abusive, was extremely difficult to work with had made tons of people cry, quit their jobs, had destroyed careers, had really, you know, just this long list of negative impacts on the organization. And as the HR chief, you know, I couldn't open an investigation because if it was coming from my own shop, it would look tainted. And, you know, normally in cases like this, you would go to inside or outside counsel. If, you know, if you have a company on board, you would work with them. And they were pretty much of the mind that, oh, no, 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 we're not going to deal with this. This person's mean, you know. <laughs> and, and then I even met with board members to talk about some of my concerns. And there was just a real lack of interest. Like there were some that really wanted to do something, but I never had like a majority vote or majority support. And so I had to figure out on my own, like, how do I engage this person? Because the normal machinery that's in place that's supposed to help me isn't helping me. And I had to force a lot of things. I had to figure out a lot of things on my own. And at the end, I think the the horrible takeaway was that when a low-ranking employee does something, they're fired on the spot. When a highly valued employee does something, they get an executive coach. And you have two very different outcomes. So I also like to work with people who are hurting because I think that there's millions of people who are hurting Mm -hmm. and to do anything I can to talk about, you know, how to navigate fear, how to, you know, push yourselves to have these conversations, to push yourselves to put these things in writing, because it's so much more important than you realize. And it protects you in ways that just speaking about something can't do. 
Um, but employees in the U.S. actually have a lot more protections than they realize. And your employer is not always going to tell you that. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I try to make sure that as many folks as possible know that there's a lot of good news out there. Laws are changing. Um, there's rules around transparency that are changing. More things are moving to jury trials and juries are very sympathetic to employees and will award them unbelievable sums of money in some cases that should make every abusive boss pause for a minute <laughs> because it could potentially destroy their their organization and attorneys that protect employees are getting so much more creative with breach of contract agreements you know when somebody doesn't follow through with what the employee handbook says or mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know shareholder derivative suits where shareholders can sue board members who knew an executive was engaging in harassment and didn't do anything to correct it. Um, mm -hmm. So accountability is really, really shifting and I think some very encouraging ways. Very cool. Very cool. That sounds nice. You really humanize the HR department uh, quite well, Kim. Oh, thank you. I'll try. <laughs> That's good. Yes. And you're not a robot, right? You're not an AI no, character. This I'm is not, not a fake voice. Okay. <laughs> yeah. No, I think I'm a person who believes that, you know, you can protect the company by protecting your people. Like it doesn't mm -hmm. have to be a zero sum game. And I think that the way the laws are shifting, if you're not protecting your people, you are really not protecting your company. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's good to be connected with something that would allow you to have support because I could see based on what you were saying here that people in those positions of, uh, you know, being an HR director or some type of, uh, you know, capacity uh, would be fearful or um, just, you know, eat it and just like, yeah. instead of actually trying to resolve the problem, but that's where people get involved and it can be challenging. Do the rules always apply or is it, is it common that sometimes things happen that just aren't fair? There can be some things that happen that really aren't fair. I mean, like one of the things that frustrates me right now is, you know, unlawful harassment, which implies that there's lawful harassment. <laughs> and so, you know, unlawful harassment is, I mean, really in a lot of ways it, it protects everybody because, you know, it's, any type of harassment that is tied to, you know, someone's personal characteristics, things that, you know, like say gender. So like if you work in an environment with all women and they're making horrible jokes about men, you could have a claim. So like literally anyone could fall into this bucket. But if those women that you were working with, let's just use them, for example, made fun of women and men the same, then now it's no longer unlawful harassment it's okay. <laughs> and, and so uh, companies now have to make a stand and employees are pressuring them to make a stand of saying, I want a culture where I don't have to deal with this. I should not have to deal with this at work. And, you know, there's a, a, a lot of conversation and it's a conversation I really push that like address your toxic environment. Like I know in my role, if somebody calls and they've been hurt by somebody, like we move on that immediately. And I'm very careful in how I build my teams. You know, like one of the things I look for is, can you have a hard conversation? Can you have a hard conversation with me as your boss? Like, you know, and, and I try very hard to create psychological safety, but I need to know that we can work at any place in the organization and advocate for people where we need to advocate. 
Absolutely. That's good to know. That's good to know. And I'd imagine that as things change, you know, these things evolve over time and spread out. So hopefully this type of thinking will be more popularized because honestly, the other way doesn't really work very well, does it? No, it doesn't. Oh. It just leads to high churn. Um, and right now, I mean, you know, not only can you be looking at lawsuits for some of these behaviors, but, you know, I like to tell folks too, like you can be one, you know, viral TikTok video away from ruin. You know, I mm -hmm. you, you see that more where an abusive boss is being videoed and it's getting millions and millions of views and their career's over and that organization is going to have a very tough time trying to get people to buy their services. Um, when those things come out, because so many people have felt this and because it is so painful, people will respond to that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's amazing. Isn't it strange how private things are publicized like that? I've always, yeah. Yeah, I've never really tuned into social media. I have a lot of friends on Facebook and stuff, but like, I, I don't really talk. I mean, I know three or four of the people maybe, and maybe a half a dozen now with uh, my jobs and stuff. But like, I mean, it's like, wow, who are all these people and why do they care about my life? And what, you know, it's like all these people sharing their w stories every day. It's like, no, God. Oh, yeah, I, I know. I'm, I'm kind of the same as you. I'm not on anything except for LinkedIn. <laughs> right on. Yeah, it's a necessary evil, unfortunately, I think. And I started it because of my music and stuff. But um, I'm realizing that like, wow, you know, even for career, it's important to have social media. Like I can hardly get through three or four applications without them all asking for a LinkedIn profile. It's like, well, yeah. that's yeah. weird. You know, it's a good, good thing I set it up, you know, thank God, yeah. you know, but like at the same time, it's like, why do they need to know that? And speaking of which, I've got to know something personally that I've been wondering about quite a bit. Yeah. And uh, to be frankly honest, it's a source of frustration and confusion. And I'd love for you, Kim, to put an end to this right now for me. Okay. Oh, wow. A challenge. Okay. Oh, you're <laughs> like this. Why is it important these days for people to ask you your race when you're applying for a job? And I've noticed that race and they want to know if you're a protected veteran, which I do understand completely. And they want to know if you have a disability, which mm -hmm. I also can understand completely. But why is it a prerequisite now, it seems, with most companies or at least a lot of them to engage in what we call air quotes, voluntary self-identification? What is that all about? And please dispel the myth because yeah. I am not sure I understand it. Well, and I think um, there's a lot of people who don't trust it and a lot of people who are afraid to answer it because they feel like, you know, for that to come up at that particular moment and time, it yeah. makes it feel like the hiring decision will somehow be based on this, right. um, which it can't be. It just can't. And so, you know, I think what companies may be trying to do when they're inserting that in there is they're trying to make sure that they have a diverse set of applicants coming through the process. And it's, you know, you, you can't search on LinkedIn based on these kinds of characteristics. They can only ask you to volunteer that information. Some folks do, some folks don't. And then I think that the hope is, is that they're trying to make something at least appear more equitable and then possibly be more equitable in terms of bringing that on. What's interesting though, is I can't say how it's applied across the board. You know, I know in public sector, they would kind of look at that 
information a little bit more. I know a lot of private sector, I think only maybe like the larger, more established organizations do it. Um, mm -hmm. But I know a lot of smaller companies do not. And sometimes you might see it where like it's an organization that has like a social justice, like leaning or mission to it, mm -hmm. that they may have something like that. Um, and then sometimes too, it's also the, whoever that company serves, you know? So mm -hmm. if, if they have like diverse consumers, they may have like an internal push to make sure that they have a diverse workforce that is emotionally connected to that group so that they're like, say, I don't know, designing products or ad campaigns or things like that, that would connect with those individuals. Um, so I don't know if that totally dispels it. I think that that's the intent maybe behind mm -hmm. why some folks are doing it. Yeah, I was, I've been so curious and there's really no one to ask. I'm glad you came along today, but, um, I just wondered if it, you know, cause in my mind it creates a sense of discrimination and prejudgment based on characteristics that have nothing to do with the job. And it's like, you know, I'm all about diversity and inclusion. Okay. Like I love it. I think it's important, but if you, if you prejudge someone based on the color of their skin or where they come from, even where they used to live, you know, it's like, forget about culture. Like maybe you judge them because they lived in Los Angeles and like, oh, they must be a criminal, you know, or something stupid like that. It's like, it's so wrong. And that's what I was thinking is, um, in my mind, I was always kind of like, wow, you know, if I have to really quantify this in my mind, it means that they want certain types of people and not other types of people. And like, I might not be the certain type of person. So it's like, I just don't know. And like, you know, I think you made sense of it, but I've been answering, do not wish to disclose. And I wonder if that's a, a hindrance. And that was my follow-up question. And then we'll wrap up here. But like, I'm just curious, like, does it hurt you if you decide not to disclose that information or do you have to play the game? No, I don't think it hurts you at all because I think that there's, you know, like if say that's their intent is it's the DEI lens, like they want to make sure that they've got different races, ethnicities, you know, gender, all of that. There, There's no way for, you know, like that assumption can go in multiple directions, you know, so people may say, I don't want to declare that I'm a black person because I'm afraid that you might use that against me. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the day, they won't know who you are. Um, I, I think it's absolutely okay to say, I do not wish to disclose, um, because I think a lot of people actually have that concern. And then it's a form of feedback for the company, um, that there's an uneasiness with that there. Now, mm -hmm. once you get hired, you know, then, you know, uh, it depends on kind of what <laughs> state you're in, you know, Sur I know surprise, yeah. <laughs> well, and, you know, at that point, Again, it's also trying to make sure, you know, like particularly like around gender, you're seeing a lot of stuff around pay transparency kick up right now. And so they have to almost have an accounting of that because states like California are, you know, requiring people to say, how much do you pay your men? How much do you pay your women? And what they're trying to look at is, are you paying one group less just because they're women? And so some of these things are at the heart of it, maybe intended to protect um, but you're, I don't think you would be the, the only person out there by any stretch that's like, this makes me uncomfortable and I don't trust it. And I feel like I'm going to be judged for something I have no control over. 
Exactly right. That's actually a perfect point. And you're exactly right. You actually did put me at ease there. I appreciate the clarification quite a bit. Thank you. (laughs) Very good. And uh, we're about out of time, Kim. Um, But boy, what an interesting experience you've had in your life and all those adventures and the cool history lessons and your, gosh, your father with the pictures and your grandfather and all the different things that you've learned and your mom and your siblings. I mean, what a good story. And it's really nice to feel inspired by somebody who's gone through all these different changes and everything, but somehow landed right where she's supposed to be. And clearly you're in the right spot. (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate that. Absolutely. Now, if somebody wanted to reach out and find you and work with you, um, how does that work? And do you have a website that we could share with our audience today? Actually, I am solely on LinkedIn, and so I'm pretty active on there. Yeah, and I get DMs almost every single day of saying, hey, I've got a work issue, and I'm always happy to make time for folks to try and help talk them through. And it's pretty easy. I mean, even though my name is Kimberly Williams, and there are one million of me, but if you go on LinkedIn and look for Kimberly-E-Williams, um, you'll see me, and I'm the VP at Walker Advertising, and I write a lot about uh, discrimination, harassment, how to stand up for yourself, and um, and I get to go on podcasts with nice people like you and talk about Thank why you. that's important. Yeah. Absolutely. Wow. What an interesting uh, bag of tricks you've got with the advertising too. How cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's really fun. That's really fun. Awesome. Kim Williams, I really appreciate you being on the show today very much. Uh, we'll stay just afterwards for a minute and um, hopefully we can cross paths again and share more of your story and where you're at later in uh, life and, you know, all that good stuff, but you really shined a positive light on HR today. And I just want to thank you personally, because it is one of those places that always feels like the principal's office, but you know, it really isn't, (laughs) you know, it's not, it doesn't have to be like that. So, you know, definitely glad to have you share. And I appreciate, you know, you sharing your experience and wisdom with our audience today. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for tuning in to the Toddcast show. If you found today's episode helpful and meaningful, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on what's next. Remember that the Toddcast show is all about community and connection. So follow the podcast on your preferred social platform to keep updated on everything I've got in store. Also check out ToddCastShow.com to find out more and stay connected with me, Todd Mira. Be sure to tell your friends and family about the Toddcast show so the podcast family can continue to grow and share on an international level. See you over on the next episode. Hi, I'm Todd Mira, host of the Toddcast show, and I want to share something personal with you today. Throughout my own life, I've struggled with issues I didn't even realize I had. Things like depression, past trauma, PTSD, and feeling disconnected from the people I loved the most. It took me hitting rock bottom to realize I couldn't fix myself alone. I needed help to unravel the tangled knots within my life, find myself again, and become stronger in the areas I was weakest. It wasn't an overnight transformation, but with time, I learned to change my thinking, my attitudes, and my entire paradigm 
for the better. I learned that it's good to ask for help, and that's why I want to tell you about our sponsor, BetterHelp. Thank you to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode of the Toddcast Show. BetterHelp is the world's largest therapy service, and the best part, it's 100% online. You can participate from anywhere, anytime that works for you. It's simple to get started. Simply answer a few questions about your specific needs and personal preferences in therapy, and BetterHelp will match you with the perfect therapist from their network. It's really that easy. You can message your therapist anytime you need support and schedule a live session when it's convenient for you. BetterHelp is committed to ensuring that you find the perfect match to guide you along your journey to well-being. As someone who went through therapy and came out way ahead of where I started, I want to invite you to take this step to a healthier, happier you today. My life was transformed through therapy, and yours can be too. With BetterHelp, you get the same professionalism and quality you'd expect from in-office therapy, but with a therapist who is hand-picked for you, all at a shockingly affordable price. And as a special offer for our listeners, you'll get 10% off your first month by using the special link, betterhelp.com forward slash Toddcast. That's betterhelp.com forward slash Toddcast. You don't have to face life's challenges alone. BetterHelp is here to support you through the big and small issues of your life in a way that can really make a huge difference, both short and long term. Take the first step towards a healthier, happier you. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash Toddcast to get started today.